When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. When you play the great pop culture debate, you bitch and you sigh. Welcome to the finals for the great pop culture debates discussion of the best Game of Thrones characters ever. I am once again joined by my panelists, Curtis Creekmore, Derek Makita, and Michael Schwartz. If you skipped part one of our discussion, shame, shame. Shame. Ding. Ding. Go back and listen to it right now, since it'll help you understand how we got to our Sweet 16 contestants. Again, spoilers will be flying like giant crossbow bolts at dragons, so if you want to remain in the dark, get thee behind the wall now. Otherwise, we're going to pull a season eight and just blow through this sucker at an insane pace. In round two, our panelists were again unanimous in their decision to advance Arya Stark over Lyanna Mormont. Next, we have a battle of the badasses, Jamie Lannister versus the Hound. Michael, talk to me about Jamie Lannister. I mean, when you put Jamie up against the Hound, the, the Hound, it, it, it's a, not a comparison because we kind of talked about this a little bit in round one about Jamie's complete, mm-hmm. like, 360 character development. He starts in a place, he develops all the way around, making significant con- contributions to the storyline, and then he ends up right back where he starts at, at the end of it in season eight in that embrace with Cersei. Uh, but the Hound, you don't get that from. I don't think so. And when it comes down to it, the Hound is a semi-likable character, I guess. You know, yeah, he's, you know, the mountain maimed him as a child stuck his face in the fire boo-hoo get over it move on but jamie lannister he learns to he loses a hand and he learns to adjust and live with that i'm with you but curtis speak on the hound so i think as i'm thinking about it and hearing you all talk about this i've already argued against jamie lannister once the hound has a true redemption arc and i really appreciate that like you grow to hate him er early on in the in the series he has excellent character development across multiple episodes you see him at the church when he's finally decided that like yes people suck i agree with him there but like the greater good is to help like when you can be helpful be helpful and i think the hound has one of the few what we could call satisfying story arcs where we see even though he ends up dying, he has helped where he can and his devotion to little firecracker Aria and pushing her through to what he believes to be her destiny, I think should be enough to move him past Jamie. For me, Jamie Lannister, I think could have been the most amazing character in this series because of the buildup of the character and showing him pulling further and further away from Cersei. And I completely understand and agree with what you all are saying where like, sometimes you don't always win. And sometimes the bad guy is bad, but I think you went from like the 10th floor of where he's gotten away from Cersei. He has made this person of himself. He's in love with Brienne. He is this better person. And then suddenly without us seeing it, he's back on floor one. I think if we had seen even just a little bit of that fall 
from 10 to one, I would be much more open to moving him forward. But the fact that we didn't see that character de-development, what's the opposite of development? Degradation? Regress. Regression. Thank you. Yes. That character regression we didn't see. And if I had, I think I would be much more open to Jamie moving forward. But to me, the the Hound was just a better character. All right. Uh, Derek, where do you weigh in on this? I see both points. I think that uh, Jamie's character development is, by the end of the show, very predictable. I think that there is definitely something to um, to be said about advancing the Hound, um, simply because he he is a, a more relatable character. He's a scrappier character. He's sort of like a an antihero, I guess. And you, you want to root for him. It's interesting because I, I know the Hound is a hugely popular character with the fandom. And I, I, this is one of those characters where, again, I like the, the book version of him better than the show version of him. But I personally never really got him as much as most other people did. But it's funny. It had not occurred to me until Curtis was talking about it that a side plot, that episode with him where he's supposedly dead and he's at the church and he sees that massacre and it like breaks him again. That is compelling in a way that I think that Jamie's compelling parts kind of fizzled out as the show went along. And I I think I actually voted to advance Jamie here, but I'm comfortable switching to the hound. Um, So uh, let's put it to a vote. Michael, where do you stand? I actually am wavering at at this point. And um, you know what? I'm going to go with the hound. Okay. Uh, Derek, where are you going? I will also choose the hound. Who saw it coming? Curtis, I'm assuming you're sticking with your pick. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I should become a lawyer after this. <laughs> Have I missed out on my calling? I... Well done, sir. The hound advances. Uh, next, they fight. They bite. They fight and bite and bite. Bite, 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 bite. bite. It's the Tyrion and Cersei show. We are split. <laughs> the sibling showdown between Tyrion and Cersei. Uh, Michael, talk to me about Tyrion Lannister. It's our first discussion of him in this podcast. Oh my god. He is like the perfect character. (laughs) Literally. The opening scene that you see of Tyrion Lannister is in um, the the whorehouse on the way to Winterfell. That is the first time that you see him and you think okay, here's this little person that's going to be like just this like foil for a lot of it and the, the who he turns out to truly be is a man with a heart and and probably the most developed ethical sense out of any Lannister that you ever see in the entire show. It, it, he's just been battered around by life so much when you meet him that you don't think that he can ever actually get up. And what he accomplishes in this show, I think, is just beyond words. He is compassionate. He is funny. He is loyal for as much as he hates his father and puts that crossbow bolt in him in the end. He like is trying to do what he thinks is best for the Lannister family and for the Seven Kingdoms as a whole. You think that he kills his father because he's doing that for what he thinks is best for the kingdom? Mm. No, I, no, I, I, no, that was two separate statements. My apologies if that was unclear. <laughs> Just checking. No, no, he's trying to... Like, he no, he does not think that that is what no. He is trying to do in the end, like and when he matches up with Daenerys and moves forward and everything. Like that, I just think the character and Peter Dinklage who plays him is just plays him 
beautifully. He is one of the few characters that I think is closest to what we saw in the books. And the way that he just brings him to life is just amazing. Definitely. And obviously, I literally don't think another actor could play that role. I, I like he is completely perfect in it. Yes. So, Jarek, talk to me about Cersei. You know, I can't dispute anything that Michael just said about Tyrion, but let me come to the defense of villain characters for a moment. In my mind, Cersei Lannister is the Ursula of the Sea Witch of mm-hmm. Game of Thrones, in yes. that she literally will do anything to get that fucking crown. She really will. She's cold and calculating and she's a survivor. And, you know, she she's really willing to do the unthinkable to those who have wronged her. And I think she's the character that across the entire arc of the show, we love to hate and hate to love. And, you know, to Cersei, family is everything. And I do mean everything. (laughs) (laughs) Curtis, you wanted to say something there. I think Derek hit it. Like she is the person you hate to love and love to hate that. That is a great way of saying it. What I think made this for me is the acting like Dinklage did fantastic. Do I think he won more awards than he should have? Yes. Unfortunately, do I think that Lena Headey should have won more? Absolutely. But what it really comes down for me to is the fact that Tyrion, if we had done this, again, if we had said that this was up to season seven, this did not include the final season, I, w- I think Tyrion might have been my number one. He would have been the winner for me as my favorite character. Like, he is super well-developed all the way up until that point. And then, suddenly, he decides everything that he has thought for the past multiple years is wrong and he's going to throw his entire weight behind it without really even thinking about it very much john has a dick good reason enough for me i'm going to go with him i mean honestly who among us didn't think john has a dick it's enough for me i mean mean, honestly too but the one thing i will say about that just as a real quick thing is that i don't think Tyrion's the only one that suffers from bad treatment in season eight i think it happens across the board and i think that just comes from a severe disappointment for all of us and how this ended completely agree and that's how i made a lot of my decisions and that's why i have to come to cersei's defense yep I am the lone outlier and I, I actually don't hate the way the series ends and that's fine. I will, I will stand on that hill alone, but um, I want to talk about Cersei for a second because Derek brought up a lot of things that I think are, are really worth marinating on. Number one, um, again, as I think I mentioned in the pre-show, I think a lot of people filled out this bracket with the characters they liked, which is completely fine. That's a, a, a totally valid way to do this. I, I left it open-ended so you could determine how what you thought was best. But Cersei's such a great villain. Like, that moment where she has just blown up the fucking church, yep. and she's got her goblet of wine, and she's just sashaying yep. in. Yes. I was like, <laughs> life goals. Exactly. Like, this is who I want to be. Um she is that bitch. And I remember when the show started and I saw the first couple episodes, I was like, man, they really m- screwed up with this casting because Lena Headey does not have the intensity that you need for this character. Because in the books, Cersei is a force of nature. And how wrong I was because she totally understood in the directors and producers that you have to start at like a five for this character so that you can build to the like 22 that she gets into like by the time you get to like season six and seven she's so good she's every bit as good as peter dinklage is i don't even want to pit them against each other because they are so good yes but where i think 
And again, I think I, I voted for Tyrion on this on the ballot, but I might be w- willing to swing to Cersei because as, as interesting as Tyrion's story is and as tragic as his story is, and I also love the theory that he's not actually Tywin's son, that he's actually Eris's bastard. Mm. I love that theory, but we don't know if it's true or not. So it's totally like headcanon. Cersei has this very real world application for her motivations. As as uh, Derek pointed out, she'll do anything for her family. She will do anything for the crown. Why is she like that? She's like that because she was smarter than any of her siblings. She was more cunning than any of her siblings. She should by right, have been the one to take 100%. over the Lannister property. Have a penis. Exactly. Oh. And so for every woman in history who has been smarter and better and good and tried to do everything right and still gets fucked, Cersei is that one who's like, oh, okay, patriarchy sucks. And what happens when you've been crushed by the wheel of patriarchy for so long? You blow up a church full of your enemies. Exactly. Like- <laughs> you know what? I-, I may not have a penis, but my pussy's on fire. And so, oh, it's just such a failure. Yes. Like, I have to say, I don't remember how I voted on this, but I'm going to go with Cersei. I think she's fucking incredible. (laughs) I'm going to die on the Tyrion Hill because I just like, I I can't switch my vote here. I I just think Tyrion's the mastermind. Like, Cersei is not smarter than Tyrion in any way, shape or form. I drink and I know things. That is literally his words that he lives by. She, she might be clever. She is absolutely clever. I'm not going to deny that. But, and I think that Cersei is an absolutely amazing character and Lena Headley, I I will worship the ground that she walks on from this, but in it, when it comes down to it is that it, it, Tyrion is, is smarter. He's clever. He's more strategic thinker than she is. And he does not have such a myopic view of what he needs to accomplish in this whole in this whole series like her. her she is singularly visioned, and she just wants one thing, and that is literally, it is power more than anything else. For her and her family, and to protect her no, and her no, children. No. I, I, I really don't even think that that's true. I think that it's really? literally just about her and the amount of power that she has. Because literally, as you watch the show, and she is nothing about, like, how can she keep Joffrey tied around her finger? How can she keep Toman tied around her finger about that kind of stuff? How much power can she have in all of this? And I don't think it's about family. I don't think it's about the children. I think it's about her trying to be the most powerful woman in Westeros. And it is about oh. her. No. I don't know. I, I think she, I think she really does love her children. And one thing that we haven't talked about is the prophecy, which I think fuels so much of who she is. And she was terrified that her children would die. And yes, she did end up putting them in danger in, in, in ways that she was not expecting. Like she never could have foreseen that Jeffrey would die the way that he did. She could have foreseen that Marjorie, or excuse me, Marcella would, and she was furious that Tyrion sent her off. He was, she was furious. And then Tommen, like that was out of left field. Mm -hmm. So I do think that she, she, first of all, I think it's, I, I would like to say it's indisputable that Cersei genuinely loved her children. Do we all agree with that? I, 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 okay. I will give you that she loved her children, but it's still about how she got power. It's interesting. That's, that's its own debate. And I, I love it. And I think, you know, you could make great, great strides on either one. And I will agree with you. I think intellectually, Tyrion is probably smarter. It, no, definitely smarter than Cersei. Yes. But Cersei is more cunning. Yep. And I think she's more ruthless. But she's cunning because she has to be, too. I think that, you know, you have to consider the role of 
the the female characters in this show and the and the world in which they're living. And did she, you know, when you when you think about how cold and calculating she is, and you know how you know power hungry we see her to be, what was the alternative to just be a doormat? Right, and let's not forget she did not have a mother. She had no strong maternal influence on her. And I, I agree with you there, but also think of it, Tyrion suffers the same kind of thing, because how much respect does the half-man get in any of this? Nobody even sees him as a human being and what he has to fight for, too. Totally, yeah. And I'm not trying to dismiss Tyrion's plot in, in any way. No, no, I get that. I just like, I'm, the arguments that you guys make for Cersei are the same ones that you can make about Tyrion in this and what he had to face. This is one of those things where, like, taking a step back and looking at this series in general, it bums me out that people have a negative impression of this property right now after the final season because this is amazing storytelling and it's really nuanced and really there's a lot of a lot of really like legitimately meaty debates that you can have that it's not just about the story but it also applies to real life and um say what you will about martin and i'm certainly very critical of him in many ways and say what you will about the last season of the show that's an incredible universe and a really Mm -hmm. rich universe that they've created i think one of the most rich universes in fantasy certainly um so I love that we're having this really intense fight over this and we could go either way. There's no wrong answer here. Right. But for me, I'm picking Cersei. Derek, where are you going? Uh, clearly Cersei. Yes. Uh, uh, Curtis. Cersei. And I would have been on the, the Tyrion train until he said the words, who has a better story than brand the broken. Mm. That was the moment when he was no longer wise and he was cunning. He let his cunning take over because he thought that that would keep him alive. Interesting. Michael, are you sticking with Tyrion, I'm assuming? I drink and I know things. <laughs> Obviously not. Oh, no. I like That That was a really tough race. I, I would, again, I'm going to say um, it is bullshit that Cersei was ranked as low as she was. There's no reason that Cersei should have been up against a number one seed like Tyrion this early in it. That that That's fucked up. I agree. And you, you end up with Tyrion, Tywin, and Cersei all in the same bracket. Yeah, it's crazy. The Lannister bracket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the list of uh, In another randomly thematic matchup between unassuming but lovely straight white guys, the majority of us want Davos to move forward over sex prodigy Podrick. Michael, I'm going to put you up to it again. Talk to me about Podrick. <laughs> and I think that you nail it on the, the, the head. It's like, is that Podrick is so completely unassuming, um, but he becomes so critical to Tyrion's time in King's Landing in surviving so much of it that. Without Podrick, I think that to support Tyrion there, we may not have had as much character development in Tyrion. He becomes this catalyst to who Tyrion becomes. And I was talking to you, Eric, about this the other day, is that in rewatching it, I had that moment where I, I just couldn't stop laughing when Podrick has his first experience at Baelish's whorehouse, and he comes back and everybody just wants to know exactly what did he do to get them to do it for free. Right. That it, it, it's like, it stuck on me. And I want you to know that when it comes down to, if I were looking this at this in terms of books and the the series, The Onion Knight would have had it hand down because Davos Seaworth's development in the books is so much more critical and so much more expansive than what you get a Podrick in the books. But in the series, I just had a, I have a natural 
draw to Podrick over Daddy Seaworth over there, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And that's actually a great point because I I agree with you. If this was based strictly on books, I give it to Davos because Davos in the books is really amazing. And that is absolutely no slight to the actor in the show. He does a very good job with the material he's given. Mm -hmm. But in the show, he's kind of the dude in the background keeping things moving, but never really that rich of a character. I think his best moments were with him and Stannis, specifically leading up to Stannis's complete and total collapse, where he's like, what the fuck are you doing? Um, and then after that, I think Davos just kind of becomes a little bit just there. He's not as nearly as critical. Right. Podrick on the show is really fun and... Um, charming and yes he's great with Tyrion, but he's also great with brienne like he, he's a wonderful foil for all of them i'm sticking with davos though because podrick to me is kind of almost like a comedic character he's he's there to lighten things up which is important in this show where as i mentioned a second ago fathers are burning their children at the stake in the <laughs> misguided hopes of summoning like a god or something but um he's not someone that excites me he entertains me whereas davos at least in those middle seasons is a really crucial part of the story and um that's why i advance him but i'm not super dogmatic about this so i'm gonna put it to a vote uh curtis where do you come on here i'm pretty dogmatic about davos because he was the moral compass of many characters i think throughout the show and i really appreciated that and we got that really cool scene where something crawls out of a vagina on live tv oh, yeah. um, not yes. live but on <laughs> national tv i guess you could say i think Pod- podrick is such a throwaway character to me he's a dick mm. they talk about how he comes out of a whore not a dick as in like a bad person he's a very sweet boy but he's just a penis he's literally a penis that women have enjoyed and want to learn more about. And that to me is not a character. Curtis, you're swinging my vote to Podrick with this argument. (laughs) (laughs) I I have truly missed my calling. I don't know what I should do. Uh, Derek, where are you? You know, as much as we all want to learn more about Podrick's pickle, um, (laughs) I I think that's where Podrick really ends as a character for me. I don't find his time with Brienne to be all that compelling. I think it's, you know, you know, he's a, he's just her, her apprentice in a way. And I I just think that Davos plays so much more of a varied influence on the story over the seasons. And he's a character that you, you like, he's a character that you, not necessarily that you want to root for him because he's not really in any, in any particular um, peril, but um, I, I just, it's Davos for me. Which is funny because in the books, I feel like Davos is continually in peril. Like one of the things they they point out is he's like Stannis's right hand man, and Stannis had chopped off the man's fingers, even though he liked him and saved his life. He chopped off the man's fingers because he is utterly without um, any type of mercy. So he is the hand to a man who had already disfigured him out of principle alone. So it, it that is interesting. I agree with you. In the show, Davos does not have nearly the amount of peril that he does in the books. Like. Davos is, I don't even think this is in the in the show. Davos's entire line gets wiped out in the Battle of the Blackwater. Like all of his sons die horribly in the ships, and he very nearly dies himself, but he gets washed out to sea. Is that in the show? Yeah, we don't get any of we don't get any of that in the show now. You get a little bit of it, but not nearly as much as the storyline in the book. Yeah, and this is one of the things I, I promised I wasn't gonna sit there and go on and on about the fucking books. But um 
if you read the the back material that's in like the history of the various families and stuff, Podrick does become more interesting when you realize that he comes from the line of, correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, Sir Illin Payne, who's yes. um, one of the terrifying Knight's Guard in the beginning of the series. I think he's the one who doesn't have a tongue, right? right. Yes, yeah, so the Mad King cookout, Illin Payne. It's met tongue, He's yes. the one that takes off Ned's head in the show. Yes. Payne. Correct. He's the executioner. Right. And so Podrick is part of that line. And so um, it's kind of cool that, again, you have this unassuming kind of sweet kid coming from a pretty fucked up line of people. Um, but I still, for me, it's it's going to be the Onion Knight. Uh, Michael, you're sticking with Podrick? I'm sticking with Podrick, but I recognize the Onion Knight's value. Okay. So I believe we are advancing Davos. Yes. All right. Uh, so next, we were unanimous in the family showdown with Sansa Stark fucking over her father, Ned Stark, just as she did on the show. I wonder if she will also come to regret that decision in later rounds. <laughs> in the battle of the best friends, our group has Samuel Tarley advancing over arguable series hero Jon Snow. I'm going to tell them how wrong they are, but Curtis, you're going to convince me first why Sam the Slayer should move on to the Elite Eight. Well, first of all, his name is Sam Well, not Sam Yule. Thank you. Well, Tarly. And all I have to say to this are three words. I done won it. What? Do you all get that? Is it no? Okay. So there was like a big meme that went around and editors, please feel free to cut this out. There was a big meme that went around about how the actor Kit Kittridge, whatever the hell his name is, like a done one when they kept trying to give him the crown or say that he deserved to be the 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 person that sat on the game of throne or the, the throne oh, right. the, the iron throne a done one it okay anyway so wow <laughs> that goes over like my hodar joke <laughs> i know right i mean somebody may get it leave it in so we are getting deeper into this bracket these battles are getting tougher and I think this is another instance where it's not so much that one character is better than the other, so much as one character was assassinated by the series finale. To me, Samuel Tarly is an intriguing character. He overcomes a ton of adversity. He actually chooses to go to what is basically prison for the rest of his life just to escape his father. And I can probably attest to that, and I would do the same. He somehow... <laughs> manages to stay morbidly obese in the show when, <laughs> when there's barely any food for anyone else to eat. He's and just big boned. That's right. If this were real life, he would have been murdered in his sleep on night two, just so everyone else could stay fed. <laughs> However, to me, Samuel Tarly is the reason that the Seven Kingdoms were not overrun by zombies. Can we all agree on that, at least? Yes. yes. He discovered how to kill them, then found where they could mine the resource that was necessary to create the tools to make that happen. Yes, he told his best friend that he was fucking his aunt, but... We've all been there. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> And in this universe, it wasn't really all that bad and not necessarily out of the question. I honestly put this one to acting because like Jon Snow is honestly a, a, another linchpin. Like if you take Jon Snow out of this, it all falls apart. But when it comes down to the acting, John Bradley, who was the actor that played Samwell, gave us a range of emotion throughout the series. He, he pissed himself when he was nearly killed by the white walkers. The first time that scene with him 
addressing his father for really the first time in his life with his wife, if that's what you want to call her, like that, that made me feel things. Kit Harrington, while a very handsome man, was just sulky the whole fucking time. Thank you. I will disagree there, and I'm I'm going to speak on behalf of John. I think Kit w- uh, really grew into the role. I think early on in the series, you could make that argument that it was very much um, a, a kind of one note performance. It was sulky, or it was shocked. I'm in danger. Um, but I think there was a lot of nuance. Two two emotions. Wow. Two emotions exactly. But as it things went along, I really think that he did grow into it. And um, you were making the argument that season eight ruined a lot of characters. Season eight did not ruin John for me. I actually thought John had a very powerful arc in season eight. That last scene where he has to go and he 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 has to put down the woman that he loves, the woman that he had been fighting for to take the crown, to take the throne. That is powerful stuff and i think he acts it beautifully i don't know what else you could do with that other than what he does to me that was a leading man it was a leading man for the last several seasons but that last scene in particular for him i thought was very strong um john you couldn't make the argument that without sam tarley that the the seven kingdoms would have been overrun by zombies but without john snow sam tarley would have been killed off in season two like um he is he didn't end up actually being the one to solve the Night King problem like everyone assumed he would be. But again, I say that that's a strength of the series, that you think you know what's going to happen and you don't. With John, there's a lot of writing on that character, right? The viewers have knowledge about what he is and what he's supposed to do way earlier than the characters do. And there is an, a tremendous level of importance placed on him that didn't exist in the universe. For the first three, four seasons of that show, he was just a bastard, right? Like no one thought anything of him. But I thought that Kit actually brought up a, a heaviness to that role and, and a weight to it. And John it could have very easily been a one note Rob Stark type of performance. And it wasn't, I thought it was really well done. I, I think it's crazy that John would go down to, to Sam. I don't get that at all. Sam is a supporting character. John is a leading man. It's not even a question. I'm going to argue with you that just because the character was set up that way, doesn't mean that they were a better character. Like, yes, John, John is a more important character than Samwell. Absolutely. But the fact that it was acted the way that it was and written the way that it was, especially in the show, I think Sam ends up being a more important character than a lead character in John. The only thing about Sam's entire plotline that actually really kind of grabbed, like moved me was the scenes with his family. And we didn't get those to like season seven, maybe even season eight. They were really good. And he did an excellent job with them. I couldn't give a shit about his, his arc with Gilly. I could not give <laughs> a shit. Um, and in terms of, I want to go to become a maester, but I can't like, yeah, I get it. It's, uh, uh, he's useful. He's a sidekick. It's almost like, I'm, I'm trying to come up with a comparison in like another cinematic universe. It's like saying that Sam Gamgee is a better character than Frodo. I don't I, see it. I think my husband would probably argue with you on that, but he's not here right now, and I haven't watched that movie. <laughs> I'll have that argument with you sometime. <laughs> what I will say is, I think the books do a better job of developing Samwell's time in the Citadel than the show does. We don't know. We haven't gotten them yet. Literally, we, Sam has not been to the Citadel in the books. Yes, he has. Yes, he has. Yes, he has. 
In the books. Where? He ends up in the Citadels. It's in the fourth or the fifth. I forget which one it is. But Fourth? I thought it was the fourth. Right, because the fourth is everything that happens in Westeros. The fifth is everything that happens outside of Westeros. So it's the fourth book. He makes it to the Citadel. He makes it there, but we don't know what he does there yet. There's some of his study. It's very early stuff, but there's more that he could do there. Yes, absolutely. They develop more of that storyline in the show than they do in the books. But he does make it there, and he starts to discover what he some of the information that becomes very critical later on. And then outside of that, you have him saving Jorah Mormont. And I don't remember who you voted for, but Samwell went over Jorah Mormont. Like the only reason that Jorah existed or throughout the, the rest of the show was the fact that Samwell learned how and saved him from the, oh, what was it called? The grayscale. Grayscale. Thank you. Uh, yes, uh, that's true. But I would argue that Jorah is superfluous by then. And additionally, in the books, Jor is not even in that that area. Like that's completely different. But that, that's neither here nor there. We're going to put it to a vote. Uh, Curtis, you're on on Team Sam. Yes. Michael. Team Sam. Derek. Sam. Okay, we're going to advance Sam. I think you're all insane, and I really look forward to you being read for filth by all of the uh, Jon Snow stands. Oh, we will. Put it in the comments. Come for That'll me. That'll be fun. Come for them. This will be a perfect mean tweet episode for <laughs> Totally. Uh, so three quarters of us think that Master of Whispers, Varys, should outlast Mistress of Ass-Kicking, Brienne of Tarth, even though Brienne came into the brackets as a one seed. Curtis, you're standing the big woman. So why don't you go ahead and explain why Brienne should go forward? Oh, it hurts my heart. I am, I am gutted, as they say in England, that all of you chose Varys over Brienne. Brienne is what every little gay boy feels inside. You are different than everyone else who looks like you. You are mocked at every turn just for being yourself, but you struggle through because fuck all those mean cunts who tear you down. You're going to be a knight one day. Brienne, to me, committed herself to someone she didn't know for certain she could trust in Caitlin, Catelyn, and then held to her own promise. She was a true knight to make sure that Arya and Sansa were safe. Was she a good knight? No. Was she a true knight? Yes. I think her romance with Jaime was one of the most interesting and unexpected romances to watch develop because even though the, the show developers succeeded in making Gwendolyn Christie look like a dump truck on most occasions, <laughs> <laughs> she is stunningly beautiful. Like she is. Yes, she is. Yes, she is. So gorgeous. Pretty. And even though season eight was a fucking dog turd overall, I do greatly appreciate the love and the care that they put into the episode titled A Night of the Seven Kingdoms. It was in season eight. It was the one where it was Brienne's episode, basically. And it was one of the very few storylines that I felt at peace with during the next episode, which was the long night, the big onslaught of all of the, the White Walkers. Everyone just knew, like everybody was like, Someone's going to die. Lots of people are going to die. At least that's what we all expected. And while watching that, all I could see, keep saying was, please not Brienne. Please not Brienne. Please not Brienne. Uh, that's all fair. And I agree with everything you just said. Derek, why don't you talk to me about why Varys is a better choice? I think it's important. Well, it's important for you to know how I come at this this um, 
fiction franchise, if you will. I'm not a big fiction reader or, quite frankly, not a big fiction watcher on television or otherwise. But what I do tend to pick up on are characters that are cunning and adaptable, that are survivors, but that are doing it sort of quietly and behind the scenes. And I think, you know, I'm, I tend to be drawn towards um, the spy genre that way. And, and Varys fulfills a lot of that, that need for me in, in a fictional character, you know, in a show so brutal and so physical, he's showing that by employing a strategic mind for more than physical combat, it has great virtue in this world. And I think, um, you know, just by, by how he has survived from administration to administration, if you will, he, he's he's worthy of being in the top tier of characters for me. Interesting. And I have to say, like, I initially voted for Varys. I think he's a, a great character, especially early on. Varys is super interesting. The same, He's right up there with me for Littlefinger, who unfortunately was an eight seed and got booted in the first round. But um, Varys kind of continues his relevancy far longer in the series than I think Littlefinger does. And I do appreciate you pointed out a great way. He's a totally non-physical character, but he's still an incredibly powerful character. Uh, Michael, you wanted to chime in there. Yeah. And I think that for, for one of the things that drew me to Varys here is this, and it's very, you know, prescient with today's society is he's the ultimate immigrant story. He comes in, from um, Essos to Westeros, he becomes, he rises in power, and everything that he does is for the, not for the Targaryens, not for the Baratheons, not for the Lannisters, not for whoever sits on the throne, but he does it for the realm. And he says that so many times, and I think he says it with so much, so much conviction, that what he does is he does it for the realm, for the for keeping the society together to limit the chaos. And, you know, I think that you can compare him to Littlefinger in a lot of ways in terms of what they do, but it's like Littlefinger does it without a moral compass and Varys does. And whether you agree with that moral compass or not is irrelevant. It's that, that he does it with such conviction for what he does. And I think that's what makes him such a unique and special character in this entire series. That's an excellent point that he is he's legitimately doing it for the realm. He does not have ego in it, whereas Littlefinger and many others do. Uh, that's that's a really well taken point. Curtis, you wanted to say something? I think that's what makes me so angry because I was such a proponent of Varys through the entire first part of the season. He was my favorite character before we met Olena, and she quickly became my favorite character. But he was very close second because he was so smart and had a moral compass and was doing everything for the realm. And what puts Brienne above Varys for me is this sudden about face that he makes on Danny when he finds out that John is a Targaryen. He is supposed to have done everything that he was doing for the realm. I was such a big proponent of Varys through the beginning of the series. He has supported Danny for years at this point. He has espoused her right to the crown. And I, I really don't understand it. I guess it's because John had the one thing that Varys wanted more than anything, which was a penis. <laughs> <laughs> and just suddenly, like, you've been supporting this woman. You think that she is the greatest thing for the... She is the queen. She is the person who owns the Iron Throne. And then suddenly when he finds out that John is the Targaryen, oh, well, maybe he is the one that actually belongs on the Iron Throne. No, then it's no longer for the realm. It's because you have this misogynistic idea of what belongs on the throne. And that's why it was just so out of character to, for me 
of Varys to make that decision that it turned me against him. I, I don't know. To me, like, and I know a lot of people have serious issues with this. And if they had like a full 12, 13 episode season, I think these issues would not exist, but they didn't. I think Varys, again, if we're saying he's a hyper intelligent person who's looking at what's best for the realm, what is going to go over better? Who has a better ultimate claim to the throne? And is it someone who's going to unite the North, which was openly rebelling at that point, who also has the, the the Night's Watch at his command, who is slaying these monsters, literally? Or is it someone who he, they're already starting to wonder, is her temperament off? Are we seeing signs of mental illness in her, which is ultimately what led to the downfall of her entire dynasty and is a very real concern. So I don't think it comes out of nowhere. It's just, it comes so fast. It feels like it's out of nowhere. It's like coming out of warp speed and in, in, in star Wars, it's like, boom, we're there. Um, but I don't, I don't know. I think you both made really excellent arguments and thank you for that. What I find myself going to here is I think Brienne is a better character from a personal arc situation, whereas Varys is a more important character from a meta arc in terms of the show. And it's hard to put those two up against each other, but we have to. And so I think in this instance, I'm I'm going with Varys. Michael, where are you? I'm on team Varys. And Curtis? I'm team Brienne. And Derek? I go with the eunuch. You go with the eunuch. All right, I'm sorry. And again, this is one where the stands are going to come for the rest of us because I guarantee you they're going to be pissed off. Fucking truly hope they do. Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so finally in our Elite Eight, in a battle of queens, our panel overwhelmingly prefers badass child poisoner Olena Terrell to a woman who burned down at least four entire communities that I can think of. I will justify why Daenerys must make it to the Elite Eight but before I do that, I'm going to let Michael hype Elena. Oh, okay. And literally, Curtis just said this a few minutes ago. Olena Terrell. I mean, how can you not just love her from the first moment that you meet her? And she is that plain spoken. She, I'm old. You're going to listen to what I have to say. To me, she's actually probably Westeros's first and foremost drag queen out of everybody. <laughs> yes, honey. I mean, she's going to read you the tea and spill the, and like the library is open. She's going to read you for everything that she has. And the fact that she unabashedly, you know, kills Jeffrey and can look them all in the eye in the end and say, I'm the one who did it. You know, she did what, again, she was doing what was best for the high garden, you know, and what it was. And, and in ultimately what was best for the realm, because we all knew that if Joffrey was king, that would have just let us, that would have been worse than the mad king, I think, in terms of being on the iron throne. But Elena Terrell, it's like, you just want to like marry a drag queen with all of the golden girls wrapped in together there. And I, literally I could watch her like eight seasons of nothing but her. It's true. And listen, you do not have to convince me about how amazing Lady Olena is. She is a gift, and um, I'm so grateful that the series gave us her. I am heartbroken that we are in a place where Daenerys Targaryen has to be up against this matchup so early because I am going <sighs> to— Okay. I know people are very angry about the way that the series ended. People think that Daenerys's ultimate arc was bullshit and that it was all for nothing. They felt very betrayed by this show. 
I think, contrary to what Michael said earlier in the in the podcast, Daenerys has an incredible character arc that I think is unlike any other one that I've ever seen in any fiction. You immediately come to sympathize with her and and root for her when she starts out as this um, completely abused prisoner who's sold into slavery and somehow wins over this brute of a man and then ends up taking over his entire kingdom and rallying it and then freeing the slave. Like this is an incredible arc that builds and builds and builds. And the whole time she's doing it because she wants to break the wheel. It's anti-patriarchy. It's I'm going to get over there. I'm going to make things change. And then she actually finally gets over there and it all goes to shit because ultimately that's not what she was trying to do. She wasn't trying to break the patriarchy. She was trying to keep things the way they were. But we never kind of got clued into that watching the show. We were just like, yeah, go queen. You got it. We're with you. Go, go, go. And it's like, no, this is still fucked up. You could make the argument, and I think it would not be a stretch, to say that the people of Westeros were not that much better off than the slaves that she was freeing. But she wanted to keep them in that exact same scenario because they weren't wearing actual chains. Daenerys has this amazing kind of comeuppance. It's one of those things where you're rooting and rooting and rooting, and then the person you're rooting for is the bad guy? What? Like, when else does that happen? Tell me. Like, with Star Wars, we knew Anakin was going to become Darth Vader when we're watching the prequels. In this show, we are for seven seasons being like, well, Daddy's going to end up on the on the Iron Throne because she's the hero of the whole story, right? Like, nobody saw that coming. Oops, no wrong. <laughs> she's the bad guy. I love it. It is so ballsy. And I think that Amelia Clark does a great job with this character. She is, in my opinion, one of the most complicated female figures in sci-fi fantasy. And it it bums me out greatly that the fandom has turned so heavily on her. I think the argument that this all comes out of nowhere is bullshit. I think it is very clearly laid the the, the kind of architecture for her fall into madness. It is there. As I mentioned before, she burned down four fucking communities at least. And we're all acting like, who could have seen this? This is out of control. What? Why would she do it? No, it's like, I don't buy that at all. You just weren't seeing what was in front of you. And that's not Daenerys's fault, nor the showrunners. That's on you. So Derek, go come for me. I'm not going to come for you. And honestly, I'm not going to disagree with anything you just said. I will just reiterate um, what's on everyone's mind, which is, had the final season not happened with its writing problems and its pacing problems and some of the decisions it made... I think Daenerys would be in a much better position to walk away with this thing. But the final season did happen, and it did affect people's opinions of the character. And I don't think there's anything that can be done about that. All true. All all completely true. And I understand I'm not going to win here, and I'm okay with it. But I do think that it is – I would ask the the listeners to – who are – intensely saying what the fuck is wrong with you get it together (laughs) she's a mess and they handled her poorly take a moment and take a step back and be like why do i feel so strongly this way is it because it didn't turn out the way you expected it to or is it because you really genuinely don't think that that's the way it's going to the the common refrain i heard was that's not what she would do that's not her character i'm going to go out on a limb and say that people who have read books and or watched a tv show are not as in tune with what a character is or is not as the people who actually created that character. And by the way, what happens to Daenerys in the end of the show is absolutely what George R.R. Martin intended for Daenerys to do at the end of the books. This was this has been canon. So I don't want to hear that. If you're saying that you know that character better than George R.R. Martin, 
I think you need to look at your life and look at your choices. All that said, Michael, go ahead. No, I, and I'm going to agree with you there. There, I, I agree with you that the that, that her her fall into madness was very obvious and it was going to happen. But again, with the shortened eighth season, it just happened too quickly for most people to be able to process and really embrace it. Uh, if they again, that is that's going to be the the problem of the show in how it was presented. I'm not going to argue with you there. She was a Tar- Targaryen through and through, as opposed to John being a Targaryen, which had some Stark blood in there for her, for him to like, weigh out the madness of it all. But I still, I, I'm still on Team Elena. But I'm, I have to agree with you 100 that it's not a surprise that where she ended up going where she went. And I would hope that a year after the show, people could. I hope to start to see that. I understand at the moment you could not argue that, but now I hope that people can see it a little better. All this said, are you all sticking with Olena, Curtis? Absolutely. Derek? She's my woman. She's your lady. And Michael, you're sticking with Olena. Oh, God. Drag drag queen realness. (laughs) So let it be written. So let it done. Daenerys, you will always be an all-star. We have... We have our Elite Eight, uh, and we're going to get right into it. So the first matchup is Arya versus the Hound, which seems super appropriate to me. And I will take votes. Who is Team Arya here? Team Arya. Curtis? Yep, me too. Derek? 100% Arya. Yeah, and I am too. This is an easy one for me, and it's hilarious. We have not yet really discussed Arya, like, at all. And I'm sure we will. Uh, but Arya is, I, I think, uh, one of the great, again, right up there with Daenerys, one of the great characters uh, of the, the arc of fiction, possibly. And it's no contest. The next one, Cersei versus Davos. This is another one to me. It's an easy pick. It's Cersei for me. Michael? Cersei. Curtis? Cersei. Derek? 100% Cersei. Absolutely. That's going to be a great final four matchup then. Uh, in Sansa versus Sam, again, I feel like this is an easy one. Sansa. Uh, Michael? Sansa. Curtis? Sansa. Derek? Wanna Sansa? Don't you wanna? Wanna Sansa? <laughs> and finally, Jesus, this is this is amazing. Uh, Varys versus Olena. Michael? Uh, Olena. Curtis? Elena, ladies are doing it for themselves, honey. They are. Derek. (laughs) I I will go with Elena on this one. Uh, Wow. Again, so for those listening to the podcast, we haven't done that many, so we're still on season one, but this has never happened that we get to the Elite Eight and we have unanimous decisions on all. But that means that this is going to be fucking brutal. So we have a (laughs) final four of Arya Stark versus Cersei Lannister and Sansa Stark versus Elena. We're going to start with Arya versus Cersei first, and I'm going to throw this one to Curtis to start off. Oh. <laughs> oh, sweet Lord. Okay. Judging everything, judging the whole series, judging acting, judging kind of everything, even though, even though Arya Stark got stabbed in the stomach multiple times by the waif, <laughs> I think... Arya as a character and everything built beats out Cersei. And I love Cersei. I do think that she is one of the most interesting villains that has been made in the last decade, if not even longer. You hate her. You love her. You understand her. You don't understand her. Like there's, she is such an enigma, but Arya is on everyone's lips. Like 
when we would go to Facebook to talk about the the episodes after they aired, everyone would talk about Aria and how interesting she was. I think Maisie, Maisie Williams, that's her name, right? Yep. She, she did such a fantastic job for what was technically a child actor. I just, I think she's, she was so good in the role. It was so well-written. Do I think that it ended up where it should have? No, but this is the one time when I'm willing to say it was close enough, even with season eight, that I'll give her the pass. Derek, where do you come in on this one? I, you know, I want to pick up on something that Curtis just said, which was that Maisie started the series as a child actor. And it's, you know, I think that in fiction, we can be very hard on child actors, expecting them to be um, something that maybe they're not ready to be. But because the show lasted for so long and because we got to see such growth in Maisie as an actress, but also as the, as the, the character of Arya kind of unfolds before us, it's so clearly Arya. I mean, I, I, I want to, I want to say again, a plug for a great villain, Cersei, but when you put the two of them together, I mean, she's, Arya is just so much more pivotal to how the show ends. Um, and I think people have so many problems with how the show ends that she's one of the strong points for me. Michael, where do you, where do you end up on this one? Well, the first thing I do want to point out is that we are fighting the patriarchy in Westeros with an all-female final four. This is the Westeros I want to live in. Exactly. (laughs) But without a doubt, hands down, it is Arya Stark. You know, it's um, and and you're right. So when Maze, when this whole series started and started filming, Maisie's 13 or 14 years old, playing that Arya Stark in season one, and we and. She may not grow physically, but Lord, what does she bring us over the course of the eight seasons of this one? From her dancing um, with her, you know, dancing teacher. Um, Cereal Pharrell. Cereal, uh, Cereal. Um, absolutely. Until, you know, that, that I, 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 and this is one of those distinct Game of Thrones memories that you have because you're around people when it happens, when she slits little fingers throat and you're at, I, I, I'm in a bar watching this and literally everything just explodes. It was just like, it is that pivotal moment. And Arya Stark for me was the, like you, 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 you grab onto a character in season one and Arya was that for me. She was like the one that I was just like, I need, I loved her in the books, but I just loved what Maisie did with her and how she developed over the course of the eight seasons of the show. So I am firmly, Aria. Yeah. So um, I'm going to be team Aria too. So we're going to have a unanimous vote here. I will say a couple things. Number one, I think that if you're comparing the arcs of these two women, Aria has an awesome start and a great end and a pretty middling middle section. Her, her arc kind of gets a little muddled once she goes over to Bravos, and there's a lot of time wasted over there until I feel like the rest of the world plot can catch up to where she needs to come back in. But I thought once she's reintroduced to Westeros and there's the reunion with Sansa and then the Littlefinger stuff and the the Frey stuff, it's excellent. When you think about it, Arya actually kills almost every major villain in the series. (laughs) She kills Night King. She kills Littlefinger. She kills Walter Frey. She was there in King's Landing to kill Cersei, but the Hound convinced her to leave and she was there to kill Daenerys. And she also missed out because Jon did it for her. But like lethal right and this is someone who started as kind of the second daughter of a a kind of secondary royal family and she turns into 
the most lethal killer in all of Westeros, which I think we can all appreciate. And that's the type of person I want on my side. Um, Cersei, we've talked about at length. Um, I will just say, I think she has a great, a better arc overall in terms of its consistency. Like she builds and builds and builds and builds and builds. And I even think Cersei's season eight overall arc is great. I think the way she goes out kind of sucks. Like I wanted more than, oh, Jamie and I get buried in the basement. Eh, that's not as, that's not so compelling. But up until that point, it's fucking great. Like she, she throws that bitch off the tower. I'm like, you know what? God love her. She wanted it more. Um, so <laughs> I, I, again, I give it to Aria, but um, it, much love to Cersei. So finally we have Sansa versus Elena. I think this might get a little more testy. Mm. Curtis, talk to me about who you're coming to on this one. <sighs> so... A couple years, I guess, maybe at this point ago, there was like one of those memes that was floating around that was like, pick the three fictional characters that make up your personality. Elena Tyrell was <laughs> one of mine. Like, she is the acid tongue. She is perfection. I, I It is so difficult for me to put into words what Elena Tyrell is she for me like hearing you all talk about what Varys was Elena Tyrell is the Varys of Westeros like she mm. with power she was the non-player she she didn't have to be physical she was able to bend people to her will and make them do what she wanted to do she was a queen if you're looking at a chessboard, she was the queen. She was telling everyone else what to do, and she was able to go wherever she wanted to go. And for me, this is honestly a really difficult decision to make, but Elena beats out Sansa for me. Interesting. Derek, where are you on this? It's tricky for me because I think both characters have such different merit. I think that... Sansa sort of comes into her own voice and comes into her own by the end of the series. And I think that's, you know, a lot of it has to do with the circumstance of what she's been put through. But I, I'll go back to my earlier comments. I think that there, there's something incredibly compelling about such a strategic mind as Elena Terrell. And there's a reason why... Um, that particular family is known for being a strong matriarchy because she suffers no fools and she gets shit done. And, you know, uh, the reason why she won over Varys in the last bracket is because she, she just has something about her that, that fans are drawn to. And I think that's one of the reasons why people find her to be a compelling character. Michael, where are you on this? Oh God, I've been I've been dreading you waiting to call my name on this because it's like I don't know which way I want to go on this because I'm like it, I'm very torn between the two of them. You have I can speak. was that? Do you want me to make my argument first, or do you, you want to go? Go ahead because I'm I'm still formulating in my head. Okay, so I'm Sansa on this one, and I actually I don't know if it's that tough of a fight for me. Number one, I'm going to point out that if it was not four gay men on this podcast, I don't think Olena would be in the finals. <laughs> fact, fact, that, is a fact. I, that is a fact. <laughs> I love her. I love her dialogue. I agree that she's uh, a chess player, and she has so much merit. But in terms of a character who has, if we're looking at this from a couple of different ways, impact on story overall character arc personal development um importance to the story i already that's repeating myself i do not think that elena 
is ticking really any of those boxes. Olena is a tertiary character who I love, love, and I think it's great that she's in the final four. That makes me very happy. Um, I, I do not think that she should be advancing over Sansa, who for me ticks every one of those boxes. All the arguments that I made for Daenerys as a character arc could very easily be made for Sansa. In fact, all the arguments that we've made for Cersei as a character could be made for Sansa as well. Sansa starts out this book as a spoiled little bitch, and I remember reading it, and literally by like book two being I think I even posted about it on social media how much I hated Sansa Stark, that she was the fucking worst. And like, yes, she did horrible things that screwed up her family, but then she kept like leaning into it and making even bigger mistakes. But by the time she goes on, by the end, she is very smart, extremely strategic. She's playing chess at a much higher level than Olena ever did because Olena, yes, was moving pieces in Highgarden, but got totally outplayed when she got to King's Landing. Sansa Stark ends up the queen of the north independent on her own terms and she's got it locked down she plays the game of thrones beautifully and i would argue she's the actual winner of this whole story sansa to me comes from a horrible start and ends up killing the game by the end and every step of it is utterly believable for me tremendous growth and a lot of people give crap to and i'm forgetting sophie uh, i can't think turner i actually think sophie turner does a great job at that character i think she's excellent i'm gonna jump in and say i agree with you here because it's when I, I i it took me a second and i went back and looked at what i put on my original bracket and everything and I, i'm gonna be team sansa here and it's because of that that she annoyed the fuck out of me for the first two seasons of this. She is a whimpering, like I hate to say, it, she's a whimpering Stockholm syndrome hostage when she's stuck in Trans King's Landing. But the minute she gets out of King's Landing and starts to come into her own Queen of the North, um, it, it's yeah, it, it, I am Team Sansa here. And she could have very easily gone exactly the same route that Cersei and Daenerys did and let all the genuinely horrifying things that happened to her break her and end up becoming a quote-unquote villain, as we're calling the other two. But she didn't. There were several moments in season eight where she had power in her hands and could have really fucked over several people. And yeah, she, she did not do it. Which I think, again, speaking to the importance of Ned Stark, that was Ned. It was also probably Catelyn to some degree. Oh, God, yes. But that, that was Ned. And so to me, like, I get why the four of us got Olena to where she is. And I'm not disrespecting her in any way. But if we're looking at a final two, putting Olena over Sansa, I don't understand how you can justify it. Derek and, and Curtis, are you sticking your to your guns? I absolutely am because I think what you said where – you said Olena got outplayed. I disagree. I think it's just that Cersei and her army were directed at the the right person at the right time. Like Olena and Highgarden were more of a threat than Sansa and the North were at that moment. So they were going to take them out first. If you had switched it up and Cersei had gone after the North and gone after Sansa first, I don't think Cersei would have even hesitated to destroy Sansa. Like it would have happened. I And then Olena is left and she would have been given time to be able to build out her forces. She had all the food. Like that was the main reason that they went after Highgarden because it would have sure. satisfied their army and like built it up. I get what you're saying. I love Sansa Stark. I fucking hated Sansa Stark in the beginning, but I understand why you've chosen her. I will go down burning with Olena Tyrell because she is me and I love her. The end. <laughs> Much respect. <laughs> Derek Makita, where are you on this? Um, I know how I voted in this matchup, so 
I, I know that I'm going to swing to Sansa in the end. <laughs> I just I just think it needs to be said what a strong character um, Olena Tyrell is. And um, you can give it to Sansa. That's fine by me. And I hope no one thinks that I am disrespecting Olena because I'm not. I love her. I love the actress who plays her. I don't know why I'm blanking on her name. Someone help me. Oh, Diana Rigg. Thank you, Diana Rigg. She was in The Avengers. Thank you. Um, but uh, I think she's awesome. I just think in the end, if we're looking at those, again, those metrics that I was talking about, it's got to be Arya versus Sansa in the final two, which is, sorry, Curtis, where we ended up. So Arya, Sansa, final two. This one I actually think is going to be pretty easy. I'm going to go around the horn. Michael, who do you pick? Arya. Curtis, who do you pick? Olena. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, let go, girl. Can I can I go last? I'm going to go last. Okay. Derek, go ahead. Uh, you, you know what? You see between these two characters and it just it's fascinating that they just happen to be sisters and they 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 come at their arcs from such different places to arrive at the same point. I just think that Arya's character development is just is just stronger. I I get what people are saying about the the kind of weak middle of her of her story arc, but um no, Arya gets the vote for me. Curtis? Sansa. I just thought about it. And when you said the middle is where it really made sense. Because if you look at the middle, which is typically the boring part, the middle of Arya's arc is where she's often Never Neverland learning how to be a faceless man. And while that's like occasionally interesting, it still does put in that very problematic time when she got stabbed multiple times in the stomach. And I'll bring that up again because no one is going to survive <laughs> that. But secondarily, the middle part of Sansa's story arc is where we learn to love her and feel bad for who she was because she is basically a rape victim who is able to take that and become an amazing leader and like if you had Sansa and Olena in the final two, I really, I, I, I think I would just abstain. I would vote present, but I think I'm going to have to give it to Sansa over Arya. Okay. Um, I, I think the, the middle point is a good way of looking at that because that's their crucibles, right? For both of those characters, those are the, the seasons where they go from this kid who one is kind of this outcast, you know, tomboy who can't make anybody happy, but her father loves her. And then the other one is pretty, pretty princess, you know, <laughs> Lisa Frank fantasies. <laughs> and they both end up on the other side as these really incredible, strong, smart, capable women who are leaders and to be feared. Um, and they have extremely different paths. But for everything that it has said in defense of Sansa, and I believe all of it, I personally give it to Arya. I think that Arya is, if we're looking at the overall arcs for the show, um, I'm, I'm pleased that it's these two in the final uh, finals. But I think Arya is, at the end of the one, if you're going to talk to me and say, which character do I think is the best to come out of Game of Thrones? I'm going Arya. So you're going to stick to your guns, Curtis? You're sticking, staying with Sansa? I, th I, I think so. I, I really do love Arya, and I think that it's an amazing character, but I, I'm going to give it to Sansa. That's cool. And again, nothing but respect for that. But there you have it, folks. Uh, in a three-to-one victory, Arya Stark is the best Game of Thrones character. But except, wait, out of nowhere, out of left field, a new candidate emerges, 
I'm going to say that the actual winner is Jonathan Van Ness of Gay of Thrones. Yes, honey. <laughs> feeling my Targaryen fantasy, and I am burning down this bracket. I am breaking the wheel, and you can Khaleesi my ass. Jonathan Van Ness, congratulations. You win it. No, but seriously. What a twist. It's even, but that's more satisfying than Bran, right? Anyway. Oh, <laughs> oh absolutely. Wow. wow. Congratulations, Aria. I want to thank my indistinguished panel. I want to thank everyone who took the time to fill out the poll and the brackets. And I want to thank you for listening. If you disagree with our decisions, please send a raven to greatpopculturedebate.com and give us all of your opinions. And while you're at it, please suggest other pop culture topics you'd like us to cover in the future. With that, our watch has ended. Good night, everybody. Bye. 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 Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.